This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I am in the studio by myself at the moment, but don't worry, I will be joined by some of the others later. This is what's happening. In just a moment, I'm going to be playing an interview I recorded last week with Canberra-based film critic Jane Freebury on a book she has recently written on the Australian filmmaker Rolf de Heer. And then later on the show, I'll be joined by regular Plato's Cave host Alexandra Helen Nicholas and guest host Hayley Inch to discuss a couple of new releases. We're going to take a look at Sicario, a tense new action thriller drama about the drug war on the US and Mexican border. And then we'll turn our attention to the diary of a teenage girl. It's a coming-of-age film set in the 1970s about a 15-year-old girl who, among other things, begins having an affair with her mother's boyfriend. But first, I'm going to play you this interview I did with the author of Dancing to His Song, the singular cinema of Rolf de Heer. Jane Freebury is a speechwriter, film critic and freelance writer who has been writing on cinema since 1987 for publications including the National Affairs Monthly, Australian Society, the Indonesian newspaper, the Jakarta Post and since 1997, the Canberra Times, where she has regularly uh, contributed interviews, reviews and feature articles. She is the author of Dancing to His Song, the singular cinema of Rolf De Heer, which has recently been published by Currency Press. And De Heer is one of Australia's most prolific, acclaimed and eclectic filmmakers. We've discussed his last two films, Charlie's Country and The King is Dead, on Plato's Cave, but he is probably best known for his films Bad Boy Bubby, The Tracker, Alexandra's Project and Ten Canoes, which was released in 2007 when Jane first began working on her book. So I began our discussion by asking her why she thinks there hasn't been more critical writing on the films of Rolf de Heer. Rolf presents such a challenge or has presented such a challenge to film critics that I thought it would be very interesting to explore what it was about his work that was so distinctive why he had been so successful. And really it was uh, to try and actually answer some of my questions. He's not, he, he's not easy to categorise and I actually thought as I started out that there was not very much critical writing about him at all, a little, but not, not a very great deal. And uh, I thought that was fascinating in itself because he already had... Uh, a very high profile at that time, clearly with uh, Ten Canoes um, having just come out um, that year. So um, I think that um, Rolf's uh, achievements ask lots of questions and um, so that was why I embarked on this adventure. I think you're right. Having attempted to write on his films myself in the past and then really struggling, I think there are, there are two issues which you just mentioned, is that one, each individual film is often very difficult to neatly categorise or to present a clear argument for because they're quite complex. And the second issue is he just he completely defies this idea of the auteur, which a lot of us film critics really love 
um, to hang on to. And, and you mentioned at the start of the book um, that, you know, he, he, he's a big fan of directors such as Stanley Kubrick and Bruce Beresford, who are also mm-hmm. filmmakers who are very eclectic. And I often think of him in the same category as Michael Winterbottom as well, the, the, the UK yes. filmmaker. So, I mean, that, is that the sort of two-pronged challenge? The films themselves are often difficult and it's so difficult to neatly categorise him as a type of filmmaker? I think, that, I think the, the main challenge for me was actually trying to find the auteur patterning. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly, clearly Rolf is an auteur um, and uh, is recognize, has been recognised as, as such. Um, but I thought that um, it was... Too often we, and I mean writers like me, fell back on easy um, sort of descriptors like, oh, you know, maverick or <laughs> can't be categorised and so on. So I set out to explore the patterns in his films and to find to find the man behind the work as well, which the um, publisher very much encouraged me to do because I think at the beginning I was very diffident about asking Rolf personal questions and nor was he somebody who invited personal questions and uh, fair enough too but um, when the book was well and truly sort of well at least the agreement between myself and the publisher was sort of really bedded down there was a request to try and find out to try and find out more about Rolf (laughs) And put it in the book. Happily, uh, Rolf um, was very obliging, and uh, we spent um, a few uh, phone calls just talking about him. What well, he was telling me about himself in his family life, and uh, I did appreciate that very much. Because there would be many who would say, "Well, this is totally irrelevant." <laughs> If we are going to approach a filmmaker as an auteur, and I think it's really admirable that you're doing that with him, and I agree with you that there are those um, auteur flares in there. It's all too easy to describe him as a maverick, but I think it's important to get to know the, the person. And having met him a couple of times, I, I was surprised yeah. at um, how warm and inviting he was and happy to talk, but also a man of incredible integrity and intelligence. Yes. So I sort of had this strange paradoxical feeling towards him of both being very comfortable around him but also very intimidated what what, what was your experience speaking with him like oh very similar yep (laughs) he's a nice guy but um oh yes he's a lovely guy yeah he's a a lovely lovely guy but um no i had a similar experience but maybe even though um (laughs) i'm probably quite a sort of on the shy side uh i perhaps don't scare that easily so (laughs) I think he's a wonderful, you know, the the qualities that you talk about um, actually contribute to him being a wonderful mentor to the new generation of filmmakers coming up because I think he, he gives so much of himself. And, um, I, and I think at the same time there is that side to him which uh, doesn't suffer fools gladly. I get that impression, um, But that's yeah. okay. And I think he, you know, he's very committed to film education too, something that's become more apparent in recent years and to being a really terrific, inspiring mentor to emerging filmmakers. And I think this side of his personality actually touches on what I think are some of the key characteristics that reoccur in his film. Because uh, for me, what I've noticed in my viewing, and it's been a while since I've seen a lot of these films, but stylistically he's very keen to give the audience the perspective of the central character. And he he often explores characters who are somehow marginalised or outsiders within their own 
they're, they're either literally outsiders or they've got some kind of outsider society within their own community. Are these sort of some of the themes that you were teasing out? Oh, absolutely. Uh, again and again, Rolf's films deal with marginalised characters and there's a struggle over language within the films and ultimately um, the voiceless find their voice <laughs> or become the tellers of their own tale <laughs> after a period of struggle. And I think this is also uh, this is true uh, for the individuals and uh, for the community as well. You can, you can certainly see Ten Canoes as being... Uh, uh, about uh, the indigenous indigenous Australians not being about it, but but uh, being as a re- coming about as a result of indigenous Australians having an insufficient voice, and Rolf providing the means for them to to express their their voice and their stories, and definitely in many films uh, of Rolf's there is, as I mentioned, a struggle over language, but there's sort of the role reversal which became quite apparent to me as I looked at all the films in Toto and I found that really fascinating um, where you have a marginalised um, outsider figure who provides, whose perspective provides a critique of the status quo and um, ultimately is able to <laughs> reverse roles with a perceived oppressor, for example, in The Tracker, for example, in Alexandra's Project, and it's a, a very interesting pattern because um, it actually seems to me to, um, you know, express a great faith in the in the possibilities or the potential for the individual to overcome their marginalisation and change the status quo and look towards a more hopeful future. So we don't have the marginalised characters ground down as we might tend to see more often in social realist cinema and we don't have a sort of a a perpetuation of marginalisation as you might see in some auteurist um, European cinema as well and say the work of the Dardenne brothers or... Hmm. or Lars von Trier. And, I mean, they're also uncategorizable <laughs> sort of auteurs as well, I think, to, to some extent. And that's why I tend to think of, you know, Rolf in that kind of company because he's a, an international auteur and an extremely individualist um, filmmaker. There's absolutely no doubt about, about how distinctive his work is. I'm talking to Jane Freeberry, the author of Dancing to His Song, the singular cinema of Rolf de Heer. And we were, we, were, we were just then talking uh, about the way he does give voice to marginalised people and how another characteristic of his films is that they do resolve with not necessarily always a happy ending, but certainly a hopeful ending. And I think that, yeah, as you mentioned, we see that with individuals in films like Bad Boy Bubby, The Quiet Room and Dance Me to the Song... Uh, dance me to my song rather and and certainly yeah. it, it made so much sense to me when he started working with the indigenous community for films like ten canoes the tracker and charlie's country one mm. of his most tricky films i feel is alexander's project and i and i i, I was very interested in your take on on and that film because it really did polarize people i remember thinking this is giving voice to a certain strain of 
feminist perspective that I think was very powerful and potent. And I know a lot of people who hate the film who feel it was doing the exact opposite. It was demonising this idea of, of, of a strong uh, woman criticising the man in her life. Tell me a little bit about, bit about your reading of Alexander's project and why you feel it's such an important film for to hear. I think it has a bit a bit of a bit both ways, actually. Uh, and I think, I mean, this is actually, it was actually Rolf's intention for it to be a balanced portrait of a couple couple's relationship disintegrating. I actually think that he's <laughs> that he's more or less achieved it. But it just depends. But the way you read the film depends on you <laughs> and where you're coming from, <laughs> or yep. where you're coming from that day. <laughs> yep. And I think that's probably the key to it being so successful. I mean, in a, you know, in a, I know a lot of people hated it, but it was actually. Um, Pretty successful at the box office for mm. Rolf. It was one of his bigger uh, films, yeah. One of his, yeah, one of his top films. Mm. And I think it's it, because it is um, actually uh, a bit of a seesaw ride, and there are expressions of, of you know uh, feminist concerns, and uh, we have a you know a, a husband figure who's a fairly sort of masculinist type sort of blokey, boofy kind of guy and who's perhaps a little bit insensitive to his wife's um, needs, uh, perhaps very insensitive. But um, I think it is possible to to actually get, have a coherent reading of it in either way, you know, taking the masculinist or the, the, the feminist point of view. Um, and I think that's why it's such an intriguing film. And I, I do actually think that Rolf achieved what he wished to achieve. Uh, it's just so intriguing how Alexandra's project did polarise people. Very, mm. very interesting. I think that I think that Rolf has a wonderful ear for um, for conversation, uh, for language, for spoken word, and uh, I think it's very well written film. As um, many, you know, all his films are really. I think he's a. I've said it before, but I think he's a, a, you know, an excellent writer as well as an excellent, which is part of being an excellent filmmaker. So I think we can attribute, you know, his the dialogue yeah, um, certainly, yeah. to the success of the film. Yeah, to you know, big contribution to the success of the film, yeah. Now, one of his, you know, the, the, the film that he's still often remembered for, his big breakthrough film is Bad Boy Bubby, also hugely controversial. And as I've discovered from reading your book, it's the first film he kind of made under his own own terms. I mean, before then, mm. he was sort of making films to order as a career filmmaker would do, but, but he didn't like that mode of filmmaking at all. So Bad Boy Bubby is the first kind of, in many ways, pure Rolf to hear films, even though I've got a fondness for those early ones uh, as well. Why do you yeah. think this film has just had the legacy that it, that it has? I mean, it blew me away at the time, and it's, I still think it's a stunning film today. During the course of writing the book, I would mention to people that I was writing a book, <laughs> some mm-hmm. people, and um, I was really surprised that the variety of different people who said, oh, Bad Boy Bubby is my favourite film. All sorts of very different people had this response and I thought, this is really surprising. Again, I suppose it can mean a lot of different things to different people. It can speak to them in different ways. I think it was it's been a bit of a slow burn actually. I mean it was it was pretty successful at the time. I, I think the box office was over 800,000 but uh, it's had tremendous shelf life and has become um, a cult film. 
Why has it been so successful? I just think it's sort of so taboo-breaking for a start. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's just uh, so extraordinarily daring, which is a word I would use to describe Rolf's work anyway, mm. so outrageous. And I'm sure that it probably spoke to a lot of young people too because in a way it's a very bizarre coming-of-age film, or at least that's the way I see it. I love mm. the way you, you, you kind of... You, I can't remember the exact wording you use, but you describe it as sort of some kind of grotesque incarnation of the ochre comedy. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it has probably some roots in the ochre comedy. Yeah. There are some marvellous um, scenes where Bubby is learning to be an ochre male. <laughs> and again, you know, the writing comes in and he mimics what people say. He probably doesn't really... You know, we don't really sense that he knows quite what he's saying, but he he uses the language and he uh, adopts the gestures, you know, their crudity and familiarity and what have you. And uh, it's very, very funny. And uh, I must say that every time I sort of revisit the film, I'm, I appreciate the humour even more. It's actually a very funny film. You know, it starts off in a very dire mood, <laughs> but when it breaks out of that and escapes... Uh, out into the city, it's despite the um, the cling rat murders and what have you. It's actually a it's a very funny film. It's very funny and a really sweet ending too. Um, yes, one thing cats. It was gorgeous. One thing yeah. that really surprised me is in the the chapter on the old man who read love stories that, that mm. apparently De Heer says it's the film that most closely represents something of the essence of who I am, you quote him as saying, most accurately reflects my sensibilities as a human being. I'd always dismiss this as a somewhat minor film of his, but obviously it's very important to him. Why is that? I've tried to get to the bottom of that. Um... Did it puzzle you as well? Well, yes and no. I'm actually quite fond of the film. I am fond of the film. Mm. I've oh, always I, liked it. I am too, um, but it's always felt like a, a, a strange side project. Yes. Because, it's one of yes. The, as you say, it's one of the only two films he ever made with international funding. and It, it, it just... I, I always struggled to neatly fit it in with everything else. Yes, exactly. You wonder, you know, where's the uh, abrasiveness and, uh, yep. and the dark humour and... Um, um, and the taboo breaking, where is it? It's not. It's not there. I think it's. It's just Rolf expressing that quietest, contemplative side of himself, the rom- romanticist nature, being at one with the environment. I, I think I've come to understand him. His. His. Um, you know, assertion. Well, it's not an assertion. It's he's just saying. You know what. What's what's true for him that he that this film is um, has is very important to him and I I can see how it fits in you know it's uh, having got to know him over the years I I don't find it so you know so difficult to understand hmm. but it certainly doesn't fit in with um, with his public profile so much and I mean that's just another contradiction really of. Hmm. <laughs> Of Rolf's, which is um, nice for someone not to be predictable too. Yeah. Well, you, you actually compare him at one point to John Sayles, and I remember seeing it at the time, mm. thinking it was very similar to, to Limbo. I can't remember which film came out first, but it did feel like a John Sayles film. So there's that. There is that. Yeah. Yes, there is definitely that, and similar sorts of protagonists. And, yeah. And it's sort of sometimes it's sort of slightly sort of 
rough-hewn feeling about it, you know, which is a similar sort of aesthetic perhaps. There are certainly um, similarities there. But, you know, Rolf is, a, as I say, very difficult to pigeonhole. Just finally, what's your favourite film of his? Have we, have we mentioned it yet or is there another one that you, you, you hold close to your heart? Well, I've got three that I really like. I really like The Tracker. Mm. I think that's it's a you know, wonderful achievement on so many levels. Yep. Um, I do also really like Alexandra's project. Yeah, great. <laughs> it might be perverse, but I do. <laughs> um, and I also like um, The Quiet Room. Yeah, um, really beautiful film, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And uh, I, I think uh, it's made with such sensitivity and such wit. So really those three films are, are my favourites, yeah. And very representative of his career, I think, too. They sort of represent different periods in his career in many ways. I think so, yes, I think so. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I think Ten Canoes is a, a absolutely fabulous achievement, mm. but the films that spoke to me when I saw them first were those three. Look, and, and actually, no, my, my very final question is, what was the biggest surprise for you when researching or writing this book? I think the discovery of the humour in Rolf. I, I, it hadn't been so apparent to me as when I saw his films again and again and detected a, a droll humour, wit, a satirist's eye, yes, but I think it was the, actually the humour that came to the fore. It's not often talked about, perhaps, and, well, perhaps it is more of late because we've seen films of his that are obviously comedies like Dr Ponk and, and The King is Dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, we've, we've noted the comedic elements in Ten Canoes as well. But, yes, I, I'm really discovering the humorist in Rolf, actually. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense to me because we, we do approach him as a very serious filmmaker, but once you kind of spot the humour, you start to notice it's, it's everywhere. And he's a bit like that as a person as well. He He's very serious and nice man, but there is also a very droll humour underlying there, him the whole time. Exactly, exactly so. Yeah, there's a lot of, of humour going on underneath the very serious surface and, uh, you know, quizzical, satiric, witty <laughs> take on things that can take you by surprise. So I think, you know, his films are like that too, that underneath a very serious sort of pattern, there is um, there is actually a lot of humour to be found. And it's a good, very good nature, a good naturedness as well, I think, that, that might be a little bit surprising if you're first confronted with bad boy Bubby. And... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> it's just yet another element of him to surprise us, and I think he's going to keep on surprising us for many years to come. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> Jane Freebury, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight, and congratulations on your, your book, Dancing to His Song, The Singular Cinema of Rolf to Hear. I think it's an important book about an important filmmaker. I really enjoyed it. It's, you split it up into each chapter is dedicated to a film. You look at the production of the film, taking note of his technical innovation. You analyse the text of the film and you look at the reception. It's a wonderful overview. Congratulations and thank you again. Oh, thanks very much, Thomas. My pleasure. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm now joined in the studio by Alexandra, Helen Nicholas 
and Hayley Inch. Good evening to you both. Hi, hi. Hello. Thanks for coming back for another stint, Hayley. Oh, no worries. Alex has just dubbed me Emergency Hayley, which I'm feeling pretty chuffed with. Break, so. out, break out the Emergency Hayley. <laughs> let's go with that from now on. <laughs> hey, let's begin with Sicario. Sicario, that's me. I'm and you're a big fan of this director, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, the bottles are going to be smashed, tables are going to be flipped. This is going to be high-energy debate at Plato's Cave. That's why you're here, Hayley. Come on. <laughs> See how I'm, I'm selling it? See Let's how bring I'm... it. Right. So... Uh, what did you think of Sicario? <laughs> <laughs> so enough about you. So <laughs> We'll start off nice and easy and then we'll work into it. Villain of Sicario finds an American FBI agent, played by Emily Blunt, roped into a morally ambiguous operation at the heart of the Mexican drug wars, where she finds herself trying to make sense of a chaotic, nonsensical world. But when your colleagues are shady guys like Benicio Del Toro and Josh Brolin, it becomes clear pretty rapidly that this is an immoral or logical universe and Kate struggles to find her place in it. Thomas, I heard you talk about this on The Breakfasters, the other day and I loved it um, and in typical Thomas and Alex style I think I disagreed pretty much with everything that you said this is basically spies redux for us but I like this this is good this is good radio people I think that we're, we're getting like a kind of David and Margaret do kind you, of thing. Do you and I disagree that frequently? Sometimes. I think it's fiery I think it's good um, I actually did really think it was quite interesting that you raised Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty and I'm going to start with that because all the way through watching this film, I was thinking of another Bigelow film, um, Blue Steel, with Jamie Lee Curtis from 1989, not a Zoolander reference. Um, there's an example that you give Thomas uh, from the film around the start of the movie where Kate's partner tells her basically to pretty herself up, that she should buy a new bra. It's, I thought it was interesting that you kind of raised that a little bit out of context because for me that was a really interesting moment because it was it was part of a series. It was a, a kind of part of a series of these these moments where her gender is raised inappropriately by colleagues um, and I think the repetition here was really essential because that specifically reminded me of Blue Steel and that it really establishes that this isn't a glitch, this isn't a one-off, this is the world that she lives in um, and it's that old chestnut I guess where it's showing a misogynist world doesn't necessarily make a film misogynist. So I, I really, that was the moment that I really started thinking about Blue Steel as a really, especially the bra, there's some really important bra stuff in Blue Steel as well. I, I pay attention to bra movies. You can quote me on that. Um, Just to back up, my, my complaint in The Breakfasters, aside from overall liking this film in yeah. general, was that I thought she was a, a, a horribly passive character who, who never gets to do anything, remains passive, and is neglected from the narrative at, at key points. That was my main complaint. I think that she's balanced by a male character who's quite similar, and I think that the way that she is shot in this film is consciously not gendered. We can perhaps go into this... Um, I think that there's a neutrality. I think that, I guess I'll talk a little bit more about it, but for me, the things that mark her character are less about her gender and more about her belief, her fundamental belief in a lawful, in lawful justice. And I think that that's, that's actually at the crux of what, what I found really engaging with, with her character. I mean, the bottom line for me is nobody in this film comes out well. Um, this is true, yes. It, everything is messy, everything is ugly, everything is futile. Uh, Villeneuve, I think, at the worst, you could call him an equal opportunity misery guts. The whole point of Sicario, I guess, is that nothing works. There are no good guys and no bad guys. And there's a really interesting character that I initially took as being a little bit almost corny. But as the film progressed and certainly where the film ends, I was just totally like this is such an important character, a very small character of a Mexican policeman who kind of bookends the film, his, his story, and I think that he's really crucial. I think that's um, a really nice touch, and the film yeah. does establish that the real ultimate losers here are actually everyday Mexican yep. people. Like, I think the, the, the final scene is beautiful. 
Um, and also, it's it's a woman in that final scene. Um, he he kind of privileges a woman with that final shot, um, I think which I think is really important. My issue too. is the guy's got to be cool, dark and disturbed, where oh, she just got to be nothing. I don't think she got to be nothing. I think that gendering her vulnerability is problematic for me. But I don't think that that makes her less of a feminist. Uh, yeah, but I think it, the film does that. I don't think. I, I really disagree. I mean, like okay. I said, I really, I really, really feel that it it, ex- it exposed the the issue of gender was an issue for other people, not for her. And I think that that goes in terms of spectatorship as well. I think that's really crucial, and I think that that's something that Villain, um, Villeneuve does with his films in general. Yeah. Um, also, I guess a lot of this stuff applies to the other the other main factor that you brought up, which is about torture. I mean, torture is really... You mentioned Prisoners, but Prisoner is explicitly an anti-torture film. When that film came out, there was a huge amount of criticism online that was very much in the spirit of... I mean, there was an article, quite a famous article on Mother Jones that was literally called the strongest anti-torture argument that has come out of the movies in years. It was very much seen as the anti... Hmm. as the anti-Zero Dark Thirty. Um, I think that Sicario is very conscious of that, and I think that Prisoners is a really anti torture film um incendiaries which i've mispronounced you pronounced it beautifully oh, before this see fancy mm. talk see what you bring to the show a little bit of class look make it a little bit posh i mean these films i think are explicitly anti-torture and i think the sicario those films are sure i think that sicario ties that in i think that it's a, it's continuing i mean and polytechnic but, but as well sicario shows us that the act of torture successfully extracts information but for what ends I, I don't think it's successful at all if you like at the end of the film if you can argue it, well, that not, torture not, works in that film not I'd in a moral something. sense but in a practical sense it's shown to work and i, I think have big problems I, with I, that. i'm the exact opposite in that i think that it shows i think it's an anti-torture film and that it shows like like other films that he's made is that he shows explicitly that torture doesn't work but it does that they that, that they get they the get results the, they want by the end of the film. Yeah. Do you really? We need to talk about the end of the film. <laughs> we have to. We, we have to dance around it. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, look, it, 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 it's sort of a. Is, is it worth getting these results for what we lose morally and ethically in terms of destroying our humanity? But they get the practical results they effectively want without wanting to say too much and get accused. They of get the spoilers. information that they need. But yeah. my my feeling is That's that that is, that is rendered futile at the end of the film. Are we getting too close From, to spoilers yeah, now? Okay. <laughs> Hayley, why don't um, you weigh in? Uh, well, yeah, I'm kind of on this uh, precipice tightwalk in between the, 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 the two of your stances that you've laid out there. I think it is a extraordinarily well-shot film. It's a very well-structured film. It just gets you, you know, really on this kind of, like, roller coaster towards the end and, and the second half of the film. You very much don't want to get to the end because you know that whatever's going to happen is not going to be good, but, you know, you're on this hell ride with Benicio Del Toro and he's going to take you there. And But I think... The, the thing that I found really discomforting about the film is I went into the film having already had um, several critics tell me, oh, this is such a feminist film, it's such a such a progressive film and, you know, you're really, really going to enjoy it. And I was wanting to enjoy it, but I found myself overtaken while watching the film with just this creeping sense of unease kind of coursing through me where I was just kind of like, eh, but it's not really. And I, I, I think my discomfort it mainly sits on the how how Emily Blunt's character is represented and also how Mexicans are represented in the film and for for me Emily Blunt's character it's not so much a problem of femininity it's more a problem of infantilization it's it's a problem of her character is constantly talked down to is constantly having violence visited upon her she's constantly restrained um 
look, a, 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 a really interesting in, uh, review I read was by Wesley Morris from Grantland, where he was talking about the opening scene where. Um, Emily Blunt's character goes into this house that has been confiscated because it's part of um, these particular drug runners' uh, racket, and he describes this 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 look on her face as being ambivalent. And he said that the ambivalence on her face looked like something a bad movie would use against her. And I just knew that she would be made to suffer for being unsure. And that's how I kind of feel. Kate's intelligence during the film is constantly used to make her look incompetent and that she's less effective. You know, like the scene where the brass and Josh Brolin's character are choosing between Kate and her partner as to who they'll get to join the operation. It's clear that Brolin's character doesn't choose her just because her partner is a younger, greener type of kid. He wants someone he thinks has a better chance of controlling and that's kind of how their whole relationship plays out. And the fact that the key scene where she finally confronts him as to what's been going on and she says to him, I'm going to tell like she's a child who's going to tattle. And that whole dynamic just made me feel so utterly uncomfortable and it's just kind of how it plays out for the entire film. She's constantly trammelled, she's constantly made to look lesser than and, yeah, all of the dudes just get to look cool and amazing and blow people away and, oh, isn't this cynical and, oh, you know, everyone comes out badly but she comes out, you know, the most badly apart from... All of the Mexicans that you see across the border who are just like these little cipher characters where we get tiny little nibbles here and there and we we don't really get to see what things are actually like for them. I mean, the story of the, the, the Mexican family, I wanted the entire movie to be about them because... The, the, the way the, the film uh, uh, characterises Mexico and particularly Juarez is that it is a drug-filled hellhole that is a nightmare to live in, which, you know, that's a racist overtone to characterise an entire country in a city like that. But what is it like living there? You know, we only get to see the Americans sorting across the, across the border, but this is almost where the real story is and where the real crux of things is, and I just didn't care about the Americans in the end. I've actually written on my notes here in big letters, you can see this, agree to disagree. And then I've drawn a picture and I've got here because um, I wanted to get a bit perky. Like I didn't want this to be like bottle smashing knife fight Plato's cave episode <laughs> with our special emergency, Haley. So agree to disagree. Point out the fact that there wasn't one moment in this film that Josh Brolin was on screen that I couldn't imagine him deep throating a chocolate covered banana. A la <laughs> inherent vice. And to prove that, I've actually, Haley, I'll show you this. I've actually drawn a picture. Oh, she of, has. It's delightful. Of, of Josh Brolin deep throating a chocolate covered banana. And that's, that's actually how I'd like to leave my review of Sicario. <laughs> yeah. No, Agreeing to good. disagree, Josh chocolate Brolin banana. didn't have enough chocolate covered bananas. Yeah. I think we can agree, you know, this, this is a work by an extremely accomplished director from a spectacle point of view. I think we're all on side by saying it's an exhilarating film. But um, you've just heard a whole <laughs> range of very, very different uh, readings of how the film works in terms of its themes, the way the narrative is presented, the presentation of the different characters. I don't think we came to anything conclusive, but I hope that was a valuable conversation. Definitely a film worth seeing. It's a conversation point film. Um, yeah, let us know who you agree with. We'll get competitive about it. Three, triple, ah. Oh.
the diary of a teenage girl, which we're now going to turn our attention to. Hayley, I gathered you mildly enjoyed this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, this was one I, I hadn't done this in quite a while, but as as the as I left the cinema for this one, I then had to go to the bathroom and have a little bit of a cry. Um, yes, so, so The Diary of a Teenage Girl has been adapted as a first-time feature by director Marielle Heller from uh, Phoebe Glockner's graphic novel. And it stars British actress Belle Powley, who most recently played the giddy Princess Margaret in A Royal Night Out. So this is a very uh, different type of role here. And she plays Minnie, a 15-year-old growing up in 1970s San Francisco. And like most teenage girls, she is surprise obsessed with sex. And the film opens with her exclamation that she has just had sex for the first time with her mother's boyfriend and the film then goes on to follow roughly the next year of her life of sexual experience in a very refreshingly honest and non-judgmental fashion i don't even know if i can even start broaching Mm. (laughs) yet all of my various feelings about this film it's it's just one of those films where you watch it and you're just like why wasn't this here when I was 15? When, when you know, I desperately needed something like this to tell me that, you know, no, sex is okay, being a girl is okay, you don't have to define yourself through men or, you know, what you look like or, or worry about what your, you know, some of the, you know more damaging things that your friends or your or adults around you might tell you. It's just this amazingly... It's this amazing cacophony of a film where your existence as a woman is just constantly validated. <laughs> and that is something that is so rare and you do not see with with no qualifiers at all. I got excited. I hit the mic again. <laughs> it was a mic-hittingly good film. It was. <laughs> I look, for what it's worth, I don't have the same kind of personal connection to it, but I was extraordinarily impressed by this film and I really, really liked it. And I found it extraordinarily uh, refreshing to see a voice given to a teenage girl in this way to express very real desires that teenage girls on cinema don't often get to express. We see this with boys all the time. One of the few... An early alarm bell for me rang in this forum. I thought, this is quite confronting. This is a teenage girl having sex with a 35-year-old man and we see them having sex in very frank and brief shots so you know what's happening but it's never voyeuristic. And then it occurred to me, so much of 80s TNA teen comedy films are built around the idea of teenage boys trying to get laid. Seeing teenagers having sex is no big deal. We just very rarely see it with girls. And when we do see it with girls, there's the implication that there's something dark and disturbing happening. And I love the fact that it's not necessarily... She kind of effectively initiates this and and he just says, yeah, sure, I'm up for it. I mean, we we don't see this dynamic normally. Usually when there's a huge age gap there, it's taken for verbatim there's something perverse going on or or somebody is oppressing somebody else. You know, it's usually the guy being the predator. Um, It's not that he completely gets off scot-free in this film either. I mean, he takes advantage of a kind of vulnerable, horny girl and as the adult, he's the one who probably should have said this relationship is a tiny bit inappropriate. But at at the same same time, yeah, the film is so refreshingly free from judgment in that way. It's weird. Even talking about this, I feel myself slipping into very conventional judgments about this kind of dynamic and this film shakes all that up. It's so refreshing. I was I was really really impressed and what an amazing performance by this mm. the, this young actor who I believe is in her early 20s. She looks very young for her age. Yeah, I think she's about 21, 22. Yep. So, yeah, and it's it's it like you said it is extraordinarily 
rare in teen dramas that you see girls actually owning their sex- sexuality and making their own decisions about who they're going to have sex with and how they're going to do it and and having such you know freedom to express that you know in most teen dramas you know they girls are seen as objects things to desire rewards things to claim you know i'm thinking of yeah. all of those well, prizes you know, or victims prizes or victims and mm. you know i'm thinking of all of those you know big time you know teen teen films that kind of focus on male experience i mean like the past decade or so have been like what apatow films like super bad and and the american mm. pie films and you know american oh. pie films not so much but um yeah but even Ameri- but, this but, made but me think of american focus- yeah exactly american it, it, it focuses on yeah. boys and boys's um sexuality and and when girls kind of appear they're just like oh they're only there because this is the only way the boys actually do get to have sex because you know they're not having sex with each other unfortunately um American Pie is actually, I think, pretty good at giving the voice mm. to some of the female characters. But that central, one of the central gags in that is the mm. idea of the teenage boy wanting to sleep with the MILF. I mean, that's the film mm. that invented the expression MILF. And I don't think I've seen the kind of, yeah, real, that, that the tables turn like you do in this film. I'm dying to know what you think, Alex. Look, I, I agree with you guys. I think it's a really refreshing take on that coming-of-age story. It's interesting that you said I didn't have this growing up. Mm. This reminded me hugely. I'm a little bit older than you, honey. Let <laughs> 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 me just tell you, in my day, <laughs> in the olden days, we had a little book called Judy Blooms Forever uh... with a penis called Ralph. And this film reminded me a lot of that. Maybe it's just like a general <laughs> kind of retro vibe. I mean, that book was, I think, I remember it being a kind of oldish book when mm. I was when it was doing the rounds yeah. of my friends. Yeah, Judy Blooms was still circulating when I was yeah. a kid and I definitely read a lot of them. I didn't read that one in particular, but yeah, it, it actually that, does... It just reminded me so yeah. much of Forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's that's not a criticism. I think that that's a really, really um, important book like yeah. for a lot of a lot of women. Mm. Um, it, I was initially a bit cagey about uh, Stellan Jr. at the start of the film. Um, I mm. thought he was a bit insipid and bland and then I realised that's precisely what he's meant to be, and I realised that that was a stroke of genius. He and uh, Kristen Wiig, I think, are just wonderful. I'm really new to her. Like, I I don't know a lot about her, but between this and Sebastian Silver's Nasty Baby, Mm. like, fan number one, she's just she's She's just having a year. She's doing it. She's... I, I've adored her ever since she kind of stole the scene she was in in Knocked Up. Knocked Up was the, yeah, the yeah. first significant film she appeared in. And I think she's a brilliant comedic actor. And she's just almost overnight done this 180 and has started taking on these really interesting, intelligent, dramatic roles. She's in The Martian as well, which I've seen, mm. and she's great in that. Yeah, and she's also done a lot of other really great little films like Nasty Baby. There was Welcome to Me, which I don't think hits cinemas, but I think you can get on DVD and VOD. There was also um, uh, the, the Skeleton Twins from last year with Bill Hader where oh, both course. of them were just yeah. hitting the dramatics and the comic notes just perfectly so it's it, it's always wonderful to encounter those actors who can do both just as well. She's really good but as you guys have said Belle mm. Pally absolutely owns this film. She uh, my big concern with this film was that it would fall into the dreaded territory of quirk mm. any kind of positive female sexuality tends to go through this ameliorification process of quirk and it just makes my flesh crawl and she doesn't do it she just Mm. single-handedly stops this whole film falling into bullshit lolita territory i think she's just the perfect blend of empowered and naive Mm. innocent and experienced she's just marvelous that being said i think that this film is really a a really strong character study um it may be the case of that it's with the source material but i found that the second half it did get a little bit and then this happened and then this happened and then this this happened i did lose my rhythm a little bit in that Mm. second half structurally but like I said, I pack a bong for this 
for that gender twist on that coming of age story, mm. it really reminded me almost like a reply to Richard Ayoade's Submarine, mm. which both of those films, I was very conscious when watching them that these are first time films from first time filmmakers, sorry, filmed by first time filmmakers. But I think this is stronger than Submarine in a, in a lot of ways, although I was really aware that, that this was somebody making their first feature film. Um, I'd say by a mile. I wasn't a fan of Submarine. Submarine, I think, was a lot more self-conscious yeah. and a lot more... It was Rushmore light. Yeah, yeah. A lot um, of people disagree with me on that, but I wasn't a fan. I, I mean, it's a little harsh, Tom. It's it a is harsh. harsh. I, 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 think, I wasn't I think, a fan. I think yeah. Submarine's beautiful, but it was very comfortable in its mm. boyness. Yeah. Um, I and I think that this very, film is very comfortable in its yeah. girlness. I think, so I do think very they're very complimentary. Yeah, I think yeah. that they, they make a great double bill, actually. Mm. And um, I, I actually love the fact that there's a teenage boy character in this film who isn't ready for sex. Yeah. Like, mm. when do we see that? The teenage boy saying, actually, I'm not, I'm not up for this yet. I, I'm not, I don't feel like this is something I want to do just yet. I mean, there's the mm. assumption that, yeah, all teenage boys are just horny monsters running around to get laid. And it's just, it's not like that. It's a whole diverse spectrum of experiences out there. And I think this film is a step closer to capturing that diversity. It's, I mean, to me, this film was, it was a confection, but it was a very pleasing one and it wasn't stupid. And, and I just, I'm so glad to see a film that isn't stupid. <laughs> That's kind of all I ask for. Please don't be stupid. Yeah, I feel like I didn't love it as much as you did, but yeah. I, I just I thank I thank it for not being stupid. Yeah, that's <laughs> the thing. It's very intelligent. It's very honest, and it lets its main character speak for herself. And I think the nakedness in well, you know. Uh, not literally, figuratively, but I think the, the nakedness of that character and she behaves in ways where, you know, it is really realistic for a teenage girl and just more of it, I say, more of it. We're going to have to wrap things up. This has been a very rapidly flying-by show. Thank you to Jane Freebury for speaking to me about her book Dancing to His Song, The Singular Cinema of Rolf De Heer. That's available through Currency Press and Currency House. Sicario is on general release through Roadshow Films and the film we've just been talking about, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, is on limited release through Sony Pictures. My name is Thomas. I've been joined by Alexandra Heller, Nicholas and Hayley Inch. Hayley, thank you again for dropping by. Oh, Thanks, Hayley. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> Alexandra and I will be back next week and if all goes to plan, Josh and Cerise will be with us. Go, go team. Full, Full house. house. <gasps> Jinx. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.